You're listening to the Opportunity Zones and Private Equity Show. Listen in for news and insights on how Opportunity Zones, private equity funds, and private real estate can help you grow your wealth. Now, here's your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones and Private Equity Show. I'm Jimmy Atkinson. Can Opportunity Zones help build homeownership opportunities in certain locations around the country? Joining me on the show today to discuss this topic and more is Chris Noppy, president at CBUS OZ Funds. And Chris comes to us from Columbus, Ohio this morning. Chris, great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing? Hey, Jimmy. Great to see you as well. Always a pleasure being a part of your program. Uh, Doing well. It's a beautiful spring day in Columbus, Ohio, and we're busy as ever. (laughs) It is indeed, I'm sure. And uh, glad to hear that. It's a good problem to have, being busy as ever. Uh, Chris, I think... A lot of my audience of high net worth investors and advisors is probably likely already familiar with you and and CBUS OZ funds because you've been a partner on several of my OZ pitch day events in the past. You've presented your OZ funds, your CBUS OZ funds a a handful of times. But for those who may be unfamiliar, can you tell me about CBUS OZ funds and what is your role there? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so I'm the president of CBUS OZ Funds. I'm a partner in the business along with my two brothers, um, Brian and Sean. So we've been real estate investors and partners for over 15 years now. Uh, we all grew up in Columbus. We have a staff of about 15 full-time um, office workers here that supports our activity. Uh, we've, we are really local market experts. And so our Opportunity Zone Fund Um, The series of funds that we launched after the passing of that legislation really focuses on the urban revitalization of the neighborhoods around downtown Columbus. Um, So that's what we've been spending the better part of our last few years really concentrating on. But we we do property management, we do renovations, and we do new construction as well. Um, So we put all of those expertises uh, as well as acquisitions, of course, um, and what might become more important later this year, distressed acquisitions. So those are all things that we pour into CBUS OZ funds every day. That's great. And uh, I think that's one of the differentiators for what you guys are doing compared to what a lot of the other OZ funds are doing around the country is something you just pointed out in your last response is that you do some renovation as well. Renovating existing buildings can be difficult within the opportunity zone framework because you have to be able to double the basis in the building in order to qualify. Uh, but you're able to kind of blend a mix of renovation with ground up construction to meet your substantial improvement or or new construction uh, requirements as as under the, uh, the the regulatory framework of opportunity zones. We'll talk about that in a few minutes here on the program. But first, I wanted to kind of start with this this broad topic, this broad question, get your thoughts about, do you believe, Chris, that opportunity zones are critical to building and restoring the housing supply in this country? We have a huge housing shortage, as my listeners and viewers are well aware. I've I've brought it up, uh, I don't know how many times on this podcast over the years. Everybody's kind of aware of the fact that there's not enough housing in this country. There's there's not enough affordable housing in this country for, for sure. And and. So are OZs helping to tackle that issue and and why is it so important? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'd say an example to underline the topic is many of the neighborhoods that we invest in that are surrounding downtown were once thriving neighborhoods, you know, back in the the 30s, the 40s, the 1950s, 
These were thriving neighborhoods. But in the past five decades, incrementally, the population has decreased. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. There was the flight to suburbs. There was freeway systems that cut through the neighborhoods, um, all sorts of things that changed nationally, you know, that affected cities nationwide. And, you know, it's once jobs started leaving and people started leaving the neighborhoods, just the, the economic downward spiral continued. And, you know, at the same time, the population's growing in our metro area. We're the fastest growing city in the Midwest. And the uh, yet, in, you know, there's not enough housing. And so you're left with these certain areas of the city who the where the population has continued to decline and the housing stock has suffered as a result of that. And so there just hasn't been the attention of investment into these neighborhoods and where opportunity zones come into play by selecting these census tracts as OZ neighborhoods, you're driving concentrated level of investment in, in exchange for the tax incentives that are offered. And so that has really propelled our activity in these neighborhoods. Um, it, it goes right along with the fact that there's a great demand for housing. But many of the houses were, they're just, they're not, they, they weren't, uh, weren't, weren't worth fixing before just from an economic standpoint and so whether it's whether they get demolished and a new home is rebuilt or or whether the they're able to get renovated and we do both um, the the level of concentration that drives opportunity investment is really what makes it worthwhile for for an investor to participate in that activity because if you're just going to build or renovate a one-off home that's in the middle of of a of a large neighborhood that is otherwise suffering from blight and and losing population, that's going to be a losing investment. But if you can do a hundred of those projects in a concentrated census track, you know, the the neighborhood will look entirely different. The housing stock becomes more and more attractive, and you're adding new housing units that were were otherwise disregarded. Um, in the broader market. And so I would, I would credit the Opportunity Zone program with allowing that to happen. It's really long-term patient capital. And so if you pair that with the right operator who has the right expertise in the local market, um, it, you, can really, you can really engage a, a complete turnaround in the trajectory and economic vitality of these neighborhoods. So clearing the blight, this uh, housing stock that fell into disrepair that was old and and underused and maybe not worth fixing up, opportunity zones came along and finally it was able to make a potential investment in those neighborhoods pencil in a way that it wasn't before. Is 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 that what you're saying basically? Yeah. Not only do the OZ incentives help, um, there are local programs that can help as well. You know, property tax abatements for renovated projects or newly constructed projects. Those have also been vital um, in assisting with these efforts. Um, and then just the level of concentration that Opportunity Zone investing drives, that's the, the other part of it. So you've got the incentives, and then you also have just the, the pure designation of certain areas that drives investment at scale. And that's really what's needed to get the neighborhoods over the hump uh, to where they're on an upward trend instead of a downward trend. How important has Ohio's Opportunity Zone tax credit been to what you guys are doing? Also, Ohio is kind of unique 
um, I don't think there's another state in the country, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that offers a tax credit if you do Opportunity Zone deals within the state. Uh, Ohio offers, I, I think I think it's a 10% tax credit. Is that right? Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that and tell us how crucial that's been for you guys and, and other developments in Ohio's OZs. Yeah. Yeah. For anyone that doesn't know, it, it's an incredible program. Um, so the state of Ohio offers a income tax credit. And I'll explain in a second why that's important, even if you don't live in Ohio. Um, the way, and it is the only state that does this. And I, I am surprised with how successful it's been, why other states aren't trying to copy it, but good for Ohio. Um, as long as they, if they remain the only one offering it, that's all the better. So any investor who invests into what's called an Ohio Opportunity Zone Fund, um, and to be an Ohio fund, you need to invest exclusively in Ohio Opportunity Zones. Um, so us being concentrated in central Ohio around the Columbus metro area, we qualify for that. Um, any investor in, that comes into our fund, they receive a, or they're eligible for a 10% state tax credit. So if you invest 100,000, that's a $10,000 tax credit you get. There's an application process that we, we work with our investors and our attorneys, we submit that for them. Um, it's a pretty quick turnaround. So within usually six months or so, they've received their 10% tax credit. And that can either be used to pay their Ohio state tax liabilities for up to six years, or it can be sold or both. They've now enhanced the program to where somebody can use part of the tax credit themselves and sell off the rest. So it's been interesting to see that market evolve. There's a secondhand market now for these tax credit certificates and it's becoming more liquid, which means our investors are able to net a higher percentage of a tax credit if they sell it. And so we, we work with financial advisors and CPAs and attorneys who have clients that are high income earners who need these, or they don't need them, but they want these tax credits. So if we have an investor from Florida or from um, Arizona or California, and they're investing in our Ohio fund, they receive this tax credit. They might not have Ohio income tax to use the credit, but they can sell it and get cash. So they're getting a cash bonus in year one. Um, they're usually netting 85% of face value. So the 10% tax credit turns into a year one bonus return of about eight and a half percent. That's pretty impressive. So it's almost akin to if you make a $100,000 investment into an OZ fund in Ohio, um, you're really, your net investment is actually only 92.5, I guess, if you're able to get back 85, what, well, 91.5. Sorry, math wasn't my strong suit. <laughs> you're, you're actually only investing, you only have uh, 91,500 out of pocket, but you've got that full $100,000 going to work for you. That's a pretty impressive uh, uh, return there right out of the out of the gate that, that must help investors quite a bit, I think. And uh, yeah, I'm surprised more states don't offer that. In fact, some states have decided to not even conform with the OZ legislation at all. And then Ohio's gone completely the other direction saying, hey, we're all in on this. Let's, let's help juice these returns even more and, and drive even more revitalization into our downtrodden neighborhoods all over the, uh, the state of Ohio. I think it's great what Ohio's doing. And I wish other states would follow suit. Uh, so you mentioned, you know, part of what's crucial to restoring these neighborhoods is doing a mix of renovation and new construction uh, with with all forms of housing too. I think you're doing single family, multifamily, and some mixed use as well. Um, tell us a little bit more about your strategy there, what you guys are doing in and around the Columbus area. And what's the mix look like exactly for you? How much renovation are you doing versus how much tear down and, and new development 
builds are you doing? Yeah, I think pairing renovation with new construction is uh, it's it's fairly unique from an operator standpoint, um, but it it really makes a lot of sense with the OZ strategies and the urban revitalization strategies. Um, so to take you through the life cycle of some of our investments to date, um, our second fund, which we opened up in December of 2019, uh, that so that fund was our first external fund. We started with an internal fund as the program was first rolled out, uh, made sure our model was able to match up, you know, from a legal and tax standpoint. And once we we tested that and had a good thesis, we brought it to ex- external investors. Um, so that was in December of 19. That fund to date has completed 50 projects, and those have all been renovations. And so that fund is specializing in the smaller housing projects. So think single family homes, duplexes, you know, up to four units. Uh, so the, the renovation piece and doing that to scale is clearing the blight. And that's really, I think, step one of neighborhood stabilization. Um, you you had some government money come in during the, the large financial crisis um, of 08, and they were typically demolishing blighted properties. So you have pockets of vacant lots, but then you also had just homes that were still boarded up, not necessarily from 08, but just since then um, boarded up. And that type of atmosphere invites crime. You know, it invites illicit activity, if there's a place for people to hide and do things they're not supposed to do. So step number one is clearing that out. And you can only really do that through demolition or renovation. Demolition is a quick fix, but it doesn't, it takes away a housing unit instead of replacing one. So renovation is preferred if it can be done. Um, So that's what that fund has done in the last three years. Um, Return wise, it's been great. Uh, We've tracked a 42% growth in equity um, in that three year period. Um, so that's tracking with our targets. Uh, and and then the next phase of that, we're going to continue to rehab buildings, um, but we're, we're now starting our first round of new home construction. And so once the neighborhood is stabilized and you have uh, population growth rather than decline, uh, the, you really can support from an economic standpoint, new construction. So the typical home builder model you build a house and you sell it. But in order to do that, because of the high cost of home construction, you have to have a fairly high resale price. And so from day one in an opportunity zone neighborhood, you're usually not going to have that. And that's why the only new homes being built in these neighborhoods in the last few decades have, have usually been financed by low-income housing tax credit programs. And so those are, are long-term rental properties that are subsidized through federal and state funds. Um, but to do it in a non-subsidized way, the Opportunity Zone Capital has allowed us to do that. And that's primarily because it's long-term patient capital. Um, and we've we've uh, teed it up, so to speak, through the renovation process. Three years of rehabbing houses in the, in the neighborhoods, you've eliminated a lot of blight already, and we're continuing to do it. And now some of those infill lots that were the result of demolitions can now be put to productive use with new housing being built. And so how that factors into the OZ framework for our investors is that they they start off as rental properties. And so we're, we're building homes with our with a long-term um, timeline in mind to where 
you know, they'll cover their costs, but they're not going to be a cash cow, so to speak, from a rental standpoint. But we believe in the, the equity growth that will happen through mortgage pay down and appreciation over time. And as the neighborhoods continue to improve, uh, we will offer um, the, the tenants of those, of those properties, the residents, the ability to purchase those homes. So that's the final, I would say, evolution or life cycle in our fund and also in uh, what I would say urban revitalization is that converting more of the renters into homeowners. And so that's something that we're, we're proud that that's part of, of the activity that we're doing. And we also think it's, it's good from an economic standpoint and it's good from a neighborhood standpoint to increase the homeownership. I think that's great. I think that's uh, one of the unique things about what you guys are doing. Um, not a lot of other opportunity zone funds, I don't think, have that type of structure where they're renovating and building new housing units and then giving the tenants an opportunity to to purchase down the road. They're either just a, a pure new development play in 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 an area and then they're renting it or 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 what have you. But uh, the other thing I'm picking up on, Chris, that what you guys are doing is you're not just demoing and then building new multifamily buildings, new residential buildings, because if you just do that in a blighted area, it's it's just going to be this nice new building in an area that's still blighted. You need to kind of clean up the blight first, clean up the boarded buildings, renovate them, and then you can start building new construction. Um, some of those infill areas too that were you mentioned were had been torn down earlier. Um, I like what you guys are doing there in Columbus. I really do. Let me ask you this though, um, building new single family homes in opportunity zone neighborhoods, not a lot of people are doing that. Uh, what are some of the challenges there that that you face? Yeah, it's certainly not easy. Uh, otherwise, a lot of people would have been doing it or we wouldn't have the housing shortage that we have to begin with if it were easy to make the numbers work. Um, but, you know, construction was always expensive. New construction is always going to be more expensive. Um, and as as I'm sure countless of your uh, show guests have discussed with the uh, supply shortages, material shortages, labor shortages, you know, prices have just gone up and up and up. Uh, we're starting to see some stabilization of that, fortunately, uh, as we move further and further away from COVID. Uh, but construction's expensive, and that really doesn't matter if you're renovating or building. Although building, it's a lot more obvious because everything is brand new materials that need to be sourced through the supply chain and uh, labor. Labor is at a shortage as well. So the good news in our market is that Columbus is, is growing pretty rapidly. Um, the downside to that is the, the construction teams throughout the city are, are maxed out. You know, so there is a labor shortage. We've got the, a giant Intel plant being built. We've got Ohio State University that continues to build and build and build. New innovation district campus being built there. New hospital towers being built as part of their medical center. Nationwide Children's Hospital has big projects going on. All very positive things um, happening economically here in central Ohio. But the downside of that is you've got to fight for crews. And that's not a new problem. That's that's kind of like saying uh, like a ship captain's biggest struggle is navigating currents. I mean, that's what we do for a living. You know, we, we have been doing it really since coming out of 08 when a lot of the construction workers left the industry and didn't come back. Um, so there's creative ways to do that. And, and we've done 
uh, I think, a pretty good job of getting some very loyal contractor teams to do great work for us. But costs are a challenge to building, and um, specifically in the OZ neighborhoods, what we've done, uh, we we do have a home building business, and some of those houses that are built are for sale. Those are outside the Opportunity Zone Fund. And then within the fund, the model is to build them for rent and eventually sale. Um, But in both cases, costs versus affordability is something that needs to be given a lot of attention. And a couple of years ago, we started looking at how can we shrink our floor plans to, to build a less expensive house? You know, so that's one big thing that we focused on. Um, we, we started doing it really before the most recent inflation spike. And so I'm glad we got a little bit of a head start there. We just thought naturally it made sense to try to offer a product that wasn't as expensive because um, as home prices continued to go up, that seemed to be the constant topic. It's like, wow, right? It's just expensive for people to buy. And I say that in a market that's still below national average. You know, we're, we're relatively cheap, but you know, nationwide there's this problem. So smaller houses starting to look at you know how we can make them more efficient, how we can eliminate some of the more expensive parts. You know, maybe somebody doesn't need a garage; they're okay with just off-street parking. Maybe you don't need the basement; you just build it on a slab. Um, so we've been experimenting with that. The first round we we started at the extreme end where we were building 1000 square foot houses, two bedrooms, one bath, no parking, no basement. And you know, we offered some of those for sale and they've had lukewarm reception. And so we've been tweaking the model. We made it a little wider, a little bigger, added another full bath, typically always including garages now. And so it's just, you know, we're entrepreneurial by nature. That's how we operate. Um, that's why we do. We're able to blend so many different strategies together. Um, but we're now, I think, at a recipe for success to where we can still build the big house and sell that to, to somebody that wants that. Um, but more importantly, for the Opportunity Zone Fund, we can build a more efficient, very desirable home, but a little more cost effective. Um, so that's what we've been doing. And we're also, we came up with a new duplex design that is being built in our, we're now on to fund three. Um, so that fund's been we, we've raised about $9 million in that fund to date, and it's uh, it's completed several projects already, but we're now just getting into the, what I would think is the exciting stuff. So talking about new construction, but also back to how we're pairing that with renovation. Fund three is renovating a 20-unit apartment building that we bought last year. Um, once our crews are through that, we, we have an 18-unit down the street that we'll be renovating later this year as well. And then at the same time, we're building uh, this summer, getting ready to build six of the new duplexes on an infill site that I was just referring to. And so those were designed similar to the smaller single family homes, but adding a second unit. Um, And so we're really excited to be able to bring that type of construction and concentrated effort or concentrated investment to the neighborhoods and just start adding housing units where there's currently none. No, I think that's really important what you guys are doing and, and others like you are doing in Ohio and around the country. You mentioned that Columbus housing still below the national average. That might change though over the years. You mentioned that Columbus is one of the uh, fastest, I think you mentioned it is the fastest growing city in the Midwest. Yep. Uh, the Ohio State University helping out a lot with that. And that new Intel plant going in is going to help out with that considerably as well. Um, give us more of the the bull case for Columbus. What, what else is there that you like about Columbus, Ohio as uh, an investment case? 
Yeah. So really what's what's driving the population growth, I think, is you, you want to look at two things in any investment decision if you're looking at city demographics. And so it's going to be demand and supply. Um, demand comes from population growth and income growth. Supply, obviously, is how many house, housing units are there and how quickly are they being added um, to the existing inventory. So Columbus is growing. We've covered that and is continued to grow. We're expected to add over a million residents by the year 2050. Um, so for a metro area of just over 2 million, that's quite a bit. Uh, we're, I think, the 14th largest city in the country. Um, we're going to continue probably in that place or move up a couple of notches if I had to guess. Um, but that being said, we have some stability here, and that comes from a very diverse economy. We're not we're not just linked to one industry or even a couple industries. As the state capital, of course, we have a lot of government jobs. So we have city and state government jobs, have a ton of healthcare here, a ton of education. There's something like 50 universities within our uh, eight county region. And so that brings a ton of young people too. And the old, the old Columbus of 20 years ago, the, a lot of the a lot of people would come to Ohio State being the, I think, third largest university in the country. They would get educated and then they would leave. They would go to Chicago or New York or something like that. Now they're staying. And so that's the difference is that the city has, has a cool factor. And so we have one of the top uh, millennial concentrations in our population right now, which has also led to a thriving startup scene. So we're, we're seeing venture capital, we're seeing startups, um, and, and just that's why job growth can happen here. As countries are relocating their, or not countries, companies are relocating their headquarters here or adding second headquarters here because we have so many young, highly educated people in our workforce and the cost of living is lower. You know, the, the California struggles of all the tech companies out there and having to build whole campuses just to house their employees and how much they have to pay people to support that cost of living. It's not, it's not a factor here in Columbus, uh, not nearly as much. So companies are, are realizing that. And like, like I said, there's every industry here. We have banking, insurance, retail, uh, manufacturing, healthcare, you, know, you name it. And there's no one segment that makes up more than I think 17% of our economy. So pretty diverse there. We don't have the booms and the busts. It's just steady growth. Um, so some of the some of the cities that have seen an influx of housing being built over the last uh, five to ten years are now even in a depreciation mode, and, and they're seeing rents drop. Um, so some of the hot sunbelt markets are seeing that. We're not seeing that here in Columbus. It's still uh, very steady growth. So that's a good thing. So that's a, more about. Um, the demand side of things on the supply side, we've been underbuilt. And you know, there's probably a few reasons for that, but the short story is we just, we have an outdated process from a zoning approval process and that has restricted supply. And so, you know, while it can be frustrating at, for larger developers that are trying to build massive projects or, you know, the 300 unit apartment buildings, Getting those through requires a million variances to the zoning code, um, which is limited supply, and that has supported pricing here. And so from an investment thesis standpoint, the lack of supply has, has really set us up for, I think, a very stable or growing housing market in the years to come. So 
Uh, that's what we're seeing. And, and with our size projects, it's um, less, there's less of that type of development risk to it because it's either an existing property that's being renovated or it's a, a smaller new construction type of home or duplex that doesn't require that higher burden of uh, pre-development uh, due diligence type of stuff. One other item that you mentioned a few moments ago, Chris, is that you're building to potential home ownership for your tenants down the line, a, uh, a rent to own type of model, uh, which I think is great. It gives the, the, the tenants who are leasing from you for a number of years, the opportunity to build some equity and eventually own uh, the, the, the housing product that you, you're building. But also how important is that with regards to your funds exit strategy? And if your tenants don't end up being good candidates to purchasing your properties from you 10 plus years down the line, what other exit strategies do you have in mind in order to get the capital back and the gains back to your uh, investors? Yeah, great question. We've called OZ capital patient long-term capital, but it's not forever capital. You know, there is a, a return aspect to it. So uh, the way that we view that, uh, there, there's, as I've mentioned, our, our fund investment strategy is to do a whole lot of smaller projects where we're building a portfolio over the 10-year fund life cycle. In the case of fund two, that's doing houses and duplexes, we already have 50. We already have 50 completed projects and another 20 in the pipeline. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if we have a couple hundred by the time that the 10 years is up. And so thinking through how that exit strategy works was part of our upfront due diligence with that. Um, we, we have flexibility in either selling and or refinancing the properties. And most of our investors have indicated a desire to stay in beyond 10 years while, while some of course, want that that money back right at 10 years in one day because that's where they get their tax-free exit. Totally understandable. So we don't have to do it all at once is the short answer. And we can do it through refinancing and selling. Um, but if you have rental properties, you're, you do have to think about tenant turnover and when a property is even going to be eligible to sell. If you want to maximize your price by selling to a homeowner, you know usually that property needs to be vacant. Um, you could sell it to another investment company, like as a portfolio sale, that would be another option as well. Um, in the last decade, that has become more and more common, actually, since there's more and more people investing in single family homes with from larger capital infusions. Um, so we can do it a variety of ways, but selling it, selling houses to our tenants through and, and allowing them that opportunity to, for home ownership, I think is the best way. Uh, so we can do that by a, a what we call a lease purchase program. So it's uh, you know we can lease them the house. They have the the option to buy it, and they actually can earn a credit towards their purchase that can be used for down payment or closing costs. You know, however they see fit by making on time rent payments to us over the course of time. And so timing those programs up to where we'll start to have some investors mature and hit their ten year deadline and they want to come out, we'll have the liquidity to do that through selling some properties, refinancing some properties. And then of course there is the portfolio sale option as well. Good. All, all good things to keep in mind as we get closer and closer to that, uh, that 10 year mark, I guess you guys have been doing this for a few years, so it'll be here before you know it, know it, I think Chris, and, uh, 
Hey, look, it's been great catching up with you today, learning a little bit more about Columbus, Ohio, and what you guys are doing within the Opportunity Zones there. Uh, just a couple more questions for you as we kind of wind down our interview today. You guys are doing great work in Columbus. You guys have a lot of real estate development and uh, renovation experience. Um, curious, in your point of view, Chris, what are some of the most powerful trends that you think will unfold across the broader private equity real estate industry over the next few years? I think what's been evidenced in the last year or so, you know, it started really with interest rates spiking um, as a reaction to inflation. You know, that that made a lot of business models nervous, you know, if not unsustainable. And so investors, whether it be venture capital or private equity, you know, or just real estate focused, there's, I think, a little bit of a feeling of flight to safety at this time. You know, there's just some uncertainty in the market. And so I think that's probably the biggest thing. Um, and then the second to that is adjusting return expectations in light of interest rates. And so that's something that, you know, the market has been operating on low interest rates for so long now that it's really taking some time for sellers and buyers to get on the same page and adjusting to that. And, you know, there's been cap rate compression for so many years and, you know, now we're starting to see it slowly go the other way. You know, I, I think it's probably going to continue to go the other way uh, a little bit as long as rates stay above the uh, intermediate historical averages. So those two things, which I think pairs pretty well for um, housing, you know, housing is, especially in the right markets and the right type of housing, it's proven to be a very stable income supported type of investment. Um, so I feel very, very good still about housing, especially the, the single family and multifamily housing in the Midwest. Um, the Midwest is now consistently Midwest cities are at the, the top of the rent increase charts, whereas it used to be the Sunbelt cities. And now you've seen those cities decline and you know, the, the stability of the, some of these markets is starting to show its value. So yeah, I'd say, you know, trying to risk adjusted returns as interest rates go up, you have to reevaluate what's, what's an acceptable risk adjusted return. And you also have to evaluate what's your downside. You know, for, for many years, people haven't really considered downside because everything's been going up. So now, now you gotta, you have to look at that safety aspect of the investment. Great thoughts, Chris. Hey, really want to thank you for sharing all of your insights today with my audience and myself. Before we go, where can our audience of high net worth investors and advisors go to learn more about you and CBUS OZ funds? Yeah, so the CBUS OZ funds website is cbusozfunds.com. There's a contact form on there. Uh, there's some links to learn more about us. There's some video segments of, of things, that, topics we've discussed in the past if you want to get to know us better. Uh, but feel free to fill out that contact form. Um, that'll come to me and our investor relations team. And we'll be sure to get back to you. You can also find us on all the social medias. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, our company has LinkedIn page. We have uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter pages, wherever, wherever you like to have fun, you can find us there. So Awesome. And we'll make sure to uh, link to a lot of those resources in our show notes for today's episode, which will be available at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And also, please be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes. Chris, it's been great. Thanks again so much. Appreciate your time today. Thanks so much, Jimmy. It's 
been, been fun. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.